and spiritually. But if we are really going to take a look how we can see Jesus in the Old Testament in earnest, I feel it's incumbent on me as your pastor, your teacher, to show you how it is that God would have us to read passages like this and see the gospel. But it does beg the question, what does this chapter have to do with us? What does this chapter have to do with our faith in Jesus Christ? Can't we just talk about other things? Is this absolutely necessary? Is it wrong to just flip past this passage and passages like it? Well, it's God's Word. God has preserved all 66 books and every chapter and verse in those books because all of it is instructive for us. I think about 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness. Even Judges 19. So what do we do with it? Our first step is to understand uh, that this chapter has a context. This this chapter, it it is kind of dangerous to just pluck it out and read it and and forget about what comes before and what comes after. It it is dangerous to, to try and understand this chapter without the broad sweep of salvation history that takes us from Genesis to Revelation. So our first step is to understand this chapter in its immediate context. It's helpful for us to know that Judges 19 is uh, the very middle chapter of five final chapters in the book of Judges. And these last five chapters together constitute a conclusion to the book of Judges. And so within this, this conclusion, chapter 19 is right in the middle. This is the central chapter in the conclusion to the book of Judges. And so it makes it a a, a centrally important chapter for the whole book of Judges, if we're going to understand it, and the contribution that the book of Judges makes to the Bible. So you have flanking chapter 19 on on the front end, chapters 17 and 18, and on the back end, chapters 20 and 21. And so the final five chapters of the book of Judges have a threefold conclusion. 17 and 18 work together. 20 and 21 work together, and in the middle is 19. And 19 draws together both what is being contributed by 17 and 18 and that which is being contributed by 20 and 21. Judges 17 and 18 describe, illustrate for us, religious depravity in Israel at the time of the judges. Religious depravity. Now, if you were to read through 17 and 18, it's not nearly as difficult for us to read those chapters. We're not as appalled as we are when we read chapter 19. But I would argue that we ought to be as appalled in chapters 17 and 18. In fact, if you had an old covenant sensitivity as you're reading through chapters 17 and 18, you say, this is awful. This is absolutely disgusting. This is an abomination. This is blasphemy. Let me just sort of broadly sketch out what happens in chapter 17 and 18. There's a man named Micah who steals from his mother. 
Immediately, we ought to think about uh, the, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother, do not steal. So, two commandments broken at the beginning of chapter 17. So, he steals from his mother a, a considerable amount of money, probably her life savings. But eventually, he tells her. And you say, well, okay, there's some moral improvement. Not, not so fast. Because though he has confessed his sin, his mother does not rebuke or forgive him, but actually rewards him and says, what a good son I have. She rewards her son, and this is how she does it. She takes a portion of the money that he had stolen from her, gives it to her son, and says, make for yourself an idol. So Micah does that. He makes an idol of silver and he worships it. Along comes a Levite. And you say, oh good, a Levite who has been charged by God to mediate the relationship between a holy God and his people. A Levite comes along. Surely he will rebuke Micah and his mother. The Levite doesn't. He's quite drawn to this idol of silver and he is persuaded to become Micah's hired priest in the shrine of this false idol. It's an abomination. Levites are not to be hired out by anyone. They belong to God. They've been set apart by God to mediate God's relationship, to, to offer right sacrifice, to tend to the, to the holy things of God, not to become a false priest of a false idol in a false shrine. Along come 600 Danites, and you say, okay, good. These Danites will say that this is an abomination, and they'll do something about it, but they don't. They come along, and they see Micah's Levite, and they're jealous, and they see Micah's shrine, and in the shrine, the idol, and they say, we don't have anything as gorgeous and beautiful as that to worship. And so they steal the idol, and they convince Micah's Levite to come. And to be their priest, and they say, is it not better to be the priest of a whole tribe, a whole company of men, than to be the hired priest of a single man? And the Levite says, yes. At the very end of chapter 18, we find out who this Levite is. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan is a descendant of Moses. How far we've fallen... These Danites, just to sort of finish this off, go to Laish. They kill the whole city, take it for themselves, and set up a false shrine, worship a false god. Now, that's not as hard for us to read, but it's, it's awful. That's religious depravity. On the other side of chapter 19, we have moral, political depravity. Because of what happens in Gibeah of Benjamin, so that's chapter 19, which we'll get back to, but just skip past 19 for a moment. Because of what happens, and this Levite sends out pieces of his concubine to all of the 12 tribes, because of this, the 11 tribes decide that they're going to declare civil war on Benjamin. Benjamin is almost wiped out. More than 25,000 men are killed. That's not even including wives and children. 
Almost the entire tribe of Benjamin is wiped out. And at the beginning of this civil war, these tribes made an oath not to give any of their daughters to any man of Benjamin as a wife. So now we have a problem. We only have a few hundred Benjaminites left. They're on the verge of extinction. And now all of a sudden, on the other side of the civil war, the rest of Israel has this strike of conscience. And they say, it's not right that we have eliminated one of the tribes of Israel, one whole tribe of God's people. Now their moral indignation against themselves rings a bit hollow and especially becomes hollow as we see their solution to this problem. They don't say, well, it was wrong of us to go into this civil war. They don't say that it was wrong of us um, uh, to give an oath not we would never intermarry with Benjamin. But they say, wasn't there a town that didn't join us in the civil war? They say, yes, Jabesh Gilead. None of those men came up and joined us in arms against Benjamin. Therefore, they weren't here. They weren't here when we made an oath. Let's go to Jabesh Gilead and kill all the men and give their virgin daughters to the Benjaminites for wives. And that's what they do. Go to Jabesh Gilead. They wipe out everybody. There's 400 virgin daughters that they give to the Benjaminites. But that wasn't enough to help repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. So this is the solution. We can't give you our daughters to be your wives. But we're going to go to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, and we're going to celebrate the festival. Why don't you just lay in the bushes and come and kidnap our daughters, and we won't stop you? That's what they did. So just imagine this. All these families, fathers, taking their daughters to a religious festival where they're to worship God, and they know that at that festival their daughters are going to be carried away and kidnapped and forced into marriages with Benjaminite men. You see there the moral political depravity, the the politics of Israel just totally broken down into civil war. The moral depravity of what they did to the tribe of Benjamin, what they did to their own daughters, what they did to Jabesh Gilead. Then right in the middle, you have total depravity, Judges 19. And, And Judges 19 brings together the religious depravity from 17 and 18, the moral political depravity from 20 and 21, and just drops it on us in the middle of the conclusion of the book of Judges. Religious depravity. We have a Levite practicing abominable worship. We have false idols, false shrines. Moral depravity. Well, do we even have to go over the moral depravity in chapter 19? The sodomy of the Benjaminites in Gibeah. The audacity of the Levite and this man who had offered hospitality to throw the concubine and his own daughter out to these Benjaminite men and to stay safely inside. And then we know the whole cause of the Civil War, what this Levite did to his concubine, dead or alive, we don't know. Moral depravity, clear. 
political depravity. Let's not go to Jebus, this foreign city, but go into Benjamin, uh, to Gibeah of Benjamin, because they're our brothers. The disintegration of Benjamin politically. Where, where was the, where was the, the authorities? the elders of that tribe, to protect the sojourners. Total depravity. We find out in these five concluding chapters, all of this took place because there was no king in Israel. It's mentioned four times in Judges 17, verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 18.1. In those days there was no king in Israel. 19.1. In those days when there was no king in Israel. And then the last verse of the whole book, 21.25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right. In his own eyes. So if we are going to understand Judges 19, we have to understand that it's a part of these five chapters at the end of the book of Judges. Our first step was to look at these five chapters and understand the immediate context of this chapter. Our second step then is to just take one step back further and understand uh, the context of Judges 19 within the book of Judges as a total. And what we need to know about the book of Judges is that the people of Israel at the beginning have come into the land. Joshua has brought them into the land that God had promised them. And then we see a, a downward cycle of sin. And we go around this cycle 12 times. There are six major judges and six minor judges. So you see this cycle six times, or 12 times, sorry. At the beginning of the cycle, they're at peace. God has given them the land. They're at peace. God has, has given them the things that he had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And, and they are worshiping God, and God is their God, and they are God's people. But it's not very long before they sin. Then in keeping with the curses that God had promised at the end of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy 28, God oppresses them with foreign powers, sometimes the Moabites, often the Philistines. And so what they were supposed to do when they're oppressed by foreign armies, they're supposed to say, oh yeah, I remember Deuteronomy 28. When we sin, when we, when we cease to worship God the way we ought to, when we fall away from Him, when we break covenant with Him, that He's going to oppress us with foreign armies. That's in our scriptures. That's in our Torah. That's what Moses told us would happen, and it's happening. And, and, and actually, this had its proper effect. The people would recognize that they were being oppressed, they'd cry out to God, oh God, help us, we've sinned, and they would repent. God would raise up a judge, and the judge would lead them in military victory and establish right worship again and, and stabilize the political situation. There would be salvation and peace in the land, and everything would be fine, usually for the, for the generations that that judge was alive. But after that judge died, see, they start into the downward cycle again. If you notice, as we start uh, with the judges, I believe Othniel is the first judge. The last judge is Samson. The quality of the judge, morally speaking, spiritually speaking, 
deteriorates. So that every time God raises up a judge, he raises up a man, or in the case of Deborah, a woman, who is not quite what the previous judge had been. Until we get to Samson, and he, he's a Nazarene, or a Nazarite, sorry, Jesus is the Nazarene. He's a Nazarite, and he breaks all of his vows to God. But God still uses him. But you see the quality of the judge. So things are deteriorating. The whole theme of the book of Judges, therefore, is that Israel's caught in this downward spiral of total depravity. God is patient. God is gracious. But as they continue to sin, God just steps back a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Until the true nature of the people in Israel comes out a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Until we get to Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. And at the bottom, at the basement of the book of Judges. At the, at the total end of this downward spiral of sin and depravity. We see the heart of Israel for what it really is. God has withdrawn himself. What the book of Judges does canonically, so step three, we've looked at the immediate context, the broader context, now let's step right back and look at, at the function of the book of Judges within the Old Testament. Last week we looked at the Davidic covenant and the fact that, that God had promised Abraham and Sarah and Jacob and Judah a king. So we know that it was God's plan to have a king. The books of Ruth and Judges show us, they illustrate for us in very vivid paint Israel's need for a king. Israel needs a king because when they don't have a king, everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Now this tells us a little bit about God's vision for a king. And if you want to know God's vision for a king, you can look specifically at Deuteronomy 17. And, and, and the king was supposed to do two things. He was supposed to orientate Israel's worship to the true God. So he had a spiritual responsibility over the kingdom. He, he is to say, we have one God, and we, there is one way to worship God. The second thing that the king of Israel was supposed to do uh, was to maintain justice and righteousness in the land so that if people broke covenant with God, there would be consequences. And the king was to exercise the judicial law to make sure that this downward spiral didn't happen. When somebody sinned, you meet that sin with appropriate consequence. And that is supposed to arrest the downward spiral. You get to 1 Samuel 8, and what do the people want a king for? They're not really concerned about the spiritual responsibilities of the king. They're not really concerned about the judicial responsibilities of the king. They're concerned about the martial, the military responsibilities of the king. And that is something that God never gave to the king in Deuteronomy 17. Which is interesting then. They want a military king. So who does God raise up for them? Saul of Benjamin. Now that should echo in our ears, having just gone through the book of Judges. You want a king, but you don't want a Deuteronomy 17 kind of king? You want a king like all the other nations who's really a military leader? I'll give you a king, I'm gonna, and guess what? He's going to come from Benjamin. Benjamin is where Judges 19 happened. 
Saul was doomed to fail. But the point is, Israel needs a king because Israel is religiously, morally, politically, and socially depraved. And this is how we are to see Jesus Christ in Judges 19. You see, Judges 19, the method that we're going to look at here is the method of illustration. In the Old Testament, God provides us with illustrations. So, so he gives us the doctrine in, in the New Testament and some illustrations, but a lot of doctrine, a lot of propositional truth. That is, this is true and that's not true. This is who I am and, and so on and so forth. And, and we, we're comfortable with propositional truth. We, we like to know, give me a definition of total depravity and I'll be satisfied. That, that's sort of the way we are in the church. Just tell me what it is. Don't describe it for me. But see, today's preaching text, Judges 19, is all about total depravity. But Judges 19 doesn't define total depravity. It illustrates it. It describes it for us. And total depravity is absolutely essential to a full understanding of the gospel. You cannot understand why Jesus was born. You cannot understand any of his teaching. You cannot understand why he was crucified. You cannot understand what he overcame by resurrection from the dead. You have no idea why he's going to return and set up a kingdom that is in contrast to the kingdoms of this world if you do not think about total depravity. Total depravity is the beginning of the gospel. And, and Paul, in the book of Romans, we're going to look at this in a moment, begins the gospel uh, with three chapters on total depravity. But what is total depravity? How might we define or describe it? Well, we have two options. Our second option, which we'll get to, is sort of where we've come in Judges 19. But let's just take a look at the option that we're more comfortable with. Option number one, the, the door that we often walk through when thinking about total depravity, and that is to go to the book of Romans. And you might read Romans 1 through 3, but let's just take a look at the, the crowning jewel of Romans 1 to 3, where Paul treats total depravity. Open up to Romans 3. I'm going to read verses 9 through 18. And, and as I'm reading this, keep in the back of your mind that what Paul is describing is Judges 19. Romans 3, verse 9. After three chapters of talking about God's wrath being poured out as he withdraws from people because we've worshipped, interesting, we've worshipped the creation rather than the creator because we have replaced God with a lie. He has given us over to all kinds of depravity, including sexual depravity, which we see in Romans 19. He says, so what then? Are we Jews any better off? That's an interesting question. Who was it that fell into total depravity in Judges 19? Israel. 
So are we any better? I'm talking, says Paul, about total depravity. Can we exclude ourselves from this because we're circumcised? Can we exclude ourselves from this because we're in covenant with God? Don't you remember the book of Judges? No, not at all. We are no better off as Jews, says Paul. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, Romans 3, and 1 to 3 really, it's very good. It's very accurate. It's a real description of total depravity. It is unabashedly direct and clear. None is righteous. No, not one. What about me? No, not one. But I do good things. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Well, what about our seeker sensitivity? No one seeks for God. They have all become worthless. Every human being born into this world is useless before God. We've all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But I, I'm a philanthropist. I give to charity. No, not one. I'm a good mother. I'm a good father. I haven't broken any major laws. I don't have a criminal record. No one does good, not even one. Does it mean that totally depraved can't do good things? Totally depraved people can do good things, but the good things they do aren't good. In this sense, they're not good in the sense that they are pleasing to God. Because the good things that unsaved people do, do not bring glory to God. They do not come from faith. Therefore, though it may not be sin and objectively the action is good, it's not good. Because it doesn't bring glory to God and it doesn't come from faith. And anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. It's hard for us to get our our heads around. It's really hard for us. Another way to say it, which I think is easier for us to say, is no good deed done by an unsaved person is good enough for God to say, well done, good and faithful servant. I think that's easier for us to understand. It, it, It all falls short. Nobody can earn their place with God doesn't mean that unsaved people can't do good things. But when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he says, 
a good teacher, what did Jesus say? Why do you call me good? Do you know who I am? No one is good but God. So what I read from Romans is the climax of Romans 1.18 to 3.20. And what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is he's describing total, or he's de yeah, describing but more defining total depravity in order to demonstrate our need for Jesus Christ in the gospel, which is the rest of the book of Romans, which is very similar to the function of Judges 19. Judges 19 is describing or it's setting up the need for a king, the need for God to do something to help Israel in their total depravity. Now, I would argue that I've got to be careful. I want you to hear what I'm saying and not what I'm not saying. I would argue that there potentially is a problem, and the problem's not with Romans 1 to 3, but the problem's with us when we read Romans 1 to 3. It's not that Romans 1 to 3 is inaccurate. It's not that Romans 1 to 3 isn't haunting. It is. If we were to preach through Romans 1 to 3, that, that would be hard. The problem is with us is that when we read it, the problem being outlined in Romans 1 to 3 remains for many of us largely intellectual, largely theological. We, we can intellectually assent to it with our minds and say, oh yes, we do have a problem, don't we? We do have a problem. We are totally depraved. We, we can't do anything good. And, and, and we can get our heads around it. The problem is Romans 1 to 3 often doesn't hit us in the gut. When you get into Romans 1 and Paul says that, that homosexuality is the first sign of God stepping away from us because we have traded in him for the creation, we are prone in our culture to say it's wrong of God to be against homosexuality. That, that's normally what we do. This is a different story if you go to Romans 19 and, and you describe it this way. Because of the, the, the moral, political, and religious depravity in Israel, there was a certain Levite with his concubine going through Gibeah of Benjamin. And they went to a place and they sat down in the square and an old man came up to him and said, don't, whatever you do, be outside when it gets dark. So this certain Levite went into the home with his concubine and the men came to that house and said, we want to have our way with this strange man that you've brought into your house. Send him out to us and let us do with him what we will. There's not a lot of people saying that God is wrong to be against that. Now, I know, okay, well, is that exactly the same thing as homosexuality? No, it's not exactly the same. problem with Romans 1 to 3 is it doesn't hit us in the gut. It doesn't strike and prick our hearts. We argue with God in Romans 1 to 3, but we're not arguing with God in Judges 17 to 21. What they're doing in Judges 17 to 21 is awful.
So option two, if you're wanting to help others to understand our need, help them to understand total depravity is take them to Judges 19. Take them to Judges 17 to 21. Because these chapters don't just define a theological idea. They describe this theological idea with illicit detail. What is total depravity? Judges 19 is total depravity. What is the solution to total depravity? Israel needs a king. It's at this point that illustration, this way that we can see theological realities through the lens of illustration rather than definition, it's, it's at this point where illustration can work hand in hand with typology, which we've gone over in, your, in weeks past, and we see that just as Judges 19 illustrates total depravity of Israel, and Israel's needs for a king. So also, Judges 19 is a picture for us of the human condition. This is not unique to Israel. This is not unique to Gibeah of Benjamin. This is the problem with humanity. If it could happen to God's people who are in covenant with God, could we not also see that it happens to every nation under heaven and every person under heaven? Humanity is totally depraved in a Judges 19 kind of way. Without divine assistance, we will slide into religious, moral, and political chaos and depravity just as Israel did in the time of the Judges. Now, you might say, well, I'm not that bad. I, I couldn't. I wouldn't. Have you read the news lately? Do you know what is most devastating to me, as I was thinking about this sermon, is how we are not, as a society, far off Judges 19. Have any of you let your children watch the news? These kinds of things are happening, not in some far off place. Five years ago in Manitoba on a Greyhound bus. These things are happening. Think about what London, England is going through right now. Think about the, the daily news cycle out of the United States. What couldn't happen to us in the church? You ever read statistics by the Barna Group? People that go to church are not all that different, to our shame, than the world in which we live. No, the other just so devastating thing is that not a lot of time had passed since God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt, given them the land that they had promised. And do you know how the book of Joshua ends? So Joshua ends and Judges begins. Joshua 24, 14 to 18. Joshua is commending the people. Now therefore, fear the Lord 
Serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, that's interesting, that's setting up. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers that they served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in the land that you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Anyone have that piece of art in their house? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Just be careful. It's at the end of Joshua. The book of Judges is the next page. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through, uh, through whom we passed. And the Lord drove, drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also were served the Lord, for he is our God. Judges 17. Levite named Jonathan, descendant of Moses, becomes the household priest for a false shrine and a false idol who gets co-opted by a bunch of Danites. And then Judges 19, then the Civil War. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now the, the question for us, when we preach the truth in the church... What happens when the word of God isn't right in your eyes? You find another church where it will be right in your eyes? As I said, total depravity does not mean that every person acts out of the full extent of their evil nature. So now I want to define, having sort of gone through this, let me now define total depravity. C.C. Ryrie defines total depravity this way. Total depravity means that the corruption, he's talking about the corruption of original sin through the fall of Adam, the corruption of sin has extended to all aspects of man's nature, to his entire being. And total depravity means that because of that corruption, there is nothing man can do to merit saving favor with God. Which means this, that unless God does something, unless God intervenes, total depravity means that every human being, every man, woman, and child, and baby, every human society, every human institution is naturally, because of our total depravity, inclined toward increasing depravity in practice unless God so intervenes. And God intervenes in two ways. He intervenes in what's called common grace. That is, everybody who is living, breathing, receives some grace from God. Otherwise, we are, we are killing each other. So there's common grace. God intervenes by common grace. Here's the thing, though. Romans 1 is very clear. That common grace is not a lasting grace. And as we increasingly pursue the depravity of our hearts, what God does is just, fine, fine. I'll, and he steps back, just one step. And we live out the depravity in fuller measure. 
Because it's not that God is causing us to sin. He's saying, I'm going to withdraw my common grace. And then he steps back more. And we go deeper into our nature. We don't become more evil. We just live out the evil that we are. God steps back a little bit more. And we become more evil in our behavior, not in our nature. This is really important. It's not our nature that becomes more evil. It's our practice. Why? It's because God is allowing us to be more and more ourselves. And so as the church who knows the scriptures, we should not be surprised at what's happening in Canada. What we... What I think should be shocking to us is that we should expect anything different. As we worship the creation more and more, as we say, God, get out of our lives more and more, and I'm talking as a society, not as a church, we shouldn't be surprised that God honors our desire to live apart from Him. And just as He gave them judges in deteriorating quality, so He's going to give us leaders who reflect the gospel less and less. Why are we surprised at that? And and here's the really scary thing. Where did the Reformation begin 500 years ago in Wittenberg? Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on a German door in Wittenberg. You know what happens when God steps back? The Third Reich, out of a very Christian country, Nazi Germany is not some uh, blip on the radar. This is God stepping back. And it's just arrogant of us to say that that could not happen to us. That's just arrogant. So, total depravity is a real problem. A real problem. We are that bad without God. Thus we too need a king. Just as kingship in Israel was meant to arrest this slide into anarchy and depravity, so in a greater way the king of kings arrests our depravity by nailing it to the cross. That's the whole point. This whole call for a king is a call for humanity to call on the king of kings and the Lord of lords. God, send us the king, and he has. And just as the king came to reign over Israel so that Judges 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 would not keep happening, so the king of kings comes to stop are slide into greater and greater expressions of depravity in its tracks. And so I pick this up. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In Romans 3 now, Paul makes a transition. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, that is what we're talking about today. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that, that opens the door to the rest of the book of Romans. God, what God says through Paul here is God sent a king to stop total depravity. Now an earthly king, David's line was not able to stop depravity in Israel. They were sent into exile. This is where Jesus is different. Jesus actually roots the total depravity out of us. And he reigns in us. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, two things are true of you. Number one, all your sins are forgiven. The wrath that you deserve, God has poured out on his son on the cross, so you are justified. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. But if that's all the gospel is, is positional righteousness before God, we haven't dealt with the total depravity problem. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus cuts the depravity out of your heart and nails it to the cross. That's what the circumcision of the heart is. He takes that sin, that evil, that wickedness, and he literally cuts it out of you and nails it to the cross. And then he gives you a new heart. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I have the great pleasure of telling you that you are no longer totally depraved. In fact, in place of total depravity in your nature, if the definition of total depravity is that we are corrupt in every aspect of our being, that's total depravity, I want to tell you that you have now been made holy and righteous in your very nature. So that now you are no longer slaves to sin and total depravity. Paul says it this way, the new self, this is Ephesians 4.24, the new self that we are given when we give our, our lives to Christ, the King, we are created at that moment after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And this is where the motif of the King is really important. Jesus now reigns supreme as king, not just from heaven, which he does. He reigns as king from heaven, and he will return to reign as king to judge the totally depraved and to call into his kingdom those who have been regenerated, given a new self, a new life. He reigns from heaven, and he will reign over a political kingdom, but even now he reigns in the hearts of regenerate believers 
so that we are not powerless against sin. We do not need to go home tonight and wonder, am I that bad that I might become a Judges 19 kind of person if I was presented with the wrong kind of circumstances? And I want to tell you, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, He now is your King. He reigns in your heart, and you are not at danger of becoming a Judges 19 kind of person. You will never be that kind of person again because you have been made holy and obedient from the heart. Now you say, but I still sin. Yes, you do. You do still sin because the lingering sin nature, we still have the weakness of our flesh. But if you've been given a new heart, you're not totally depraved, which means that God will never let you slide into the depth of depravity that once you were vulnerable to. Praise be to God because we have a king seated on the throne and reigning in our hearts. That's the gospel. That's how we see Jesus Christ in Judges 19. Let me pray for you. Oh God, I pray for us. I pray that you would help us. I thank you that we no longer have to come to you in prayer saying that we are totally depraved. Help us if we have put our faith in Christ, but you have saved us. You have become our king. You reign from heaven. You reign in our hearts, and you will return to reign on earth. We pray for our loved ones who are totally depraved, We thank you for the common grace at work in their life. That they have not lived out the fullness of their depravity. But God, we pray for saving grace. Through the King of kings and the Lord of lords who has come and our King has nailed our total depravity to the cross. What a load he carried, the sinless one, for us. Oh, Jesus, our King, we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.